Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are winding down the Joseph narrative. We're in the third year of the triennial cycle, so we're starting at the last third of every Torah portion. So we're in the last third of the... Um, third, uh, this third part of the Joseph narrative. So let's uh, take a look at our, so we remember what happened. Someone already mentioned the baker and the butler from last week, the butler doing well, baker, not so much. Um, And um, so Joseph is vizier of Egypt. Um, Earlier in this Parsha, uh, he comes out to his brothers because uh, he hears Judah saying, take me instead of Benjamin, uh, Judah, who in the, in the interim has lost two sons uh, and almost killed uh, the son that Tamar was pregnant with. So um, Judah has learned and changed, and he offers himself in place of Benjamin. And when Joseph hears this, he can't hold back anymore, and he weeps. And he comes out to his brothers and tells them who he is. Um, and there is this tearful reunion. And now we're, we're after that scene. Um, and we're here now with uh, Joseph after he has told his brothers his true identity. So here we are that Joseph orders his chariot and went to Goshen to meet his father, Israel. He presented himself to him and embracing him around the neck, he wept on his neck a good while. So again, we have Joseph weeping. We have lots of these. Um, we saw the first one when he has to leave the room because he can't control himself and he has to leave before he's come out to them. And he cries in private. Then he washes his face and goes back in. Then he weeps when Judah offers himself in, in place of Benjamin. And now we have him again um, when he uh, sees his father. He weeps. He hugs his father and weeps. Then Israel said to Joseph, now I can die, having seen for myself that you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell the news to Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds. They have always been breeders of livestock and they have brought with them their flocks and herds and all that is theirs. So when Pharaoh summons you and asks, what is your occupation? You shall answer, your servants have been breeders of livestock from the start until now, both we and our fathers, so that you may stay in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are abhorrent to Egyptians. So we've talked a little bit about this. And by the way, this word in Hebrew, to'eva, is the same exact word that we have in Hebrew in the Bible that talks about an abomination. So this is not just something that's used in Torah about things that are taboo uh, in Israelite religion. It's also used of how the Egyptians saw things in Egyptian culture and Egyptian religion, that they also have this concept of to'eva, of, of something that's an abomination. Then Joseph came and reported to Pharaoh, saying, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that is theirs have come from the land of Canaan and are now in the region of Goshen. And selecting a few of his brothers, he presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? They answered Pharaoh, we, your servants, are shepherds, 
as were also our fathers. We have come, they told Pharaoh, to sojourn in this land, for there was no pasture for your servants' flocks, the famine being severe in the land of Canaan. Pray then, let your servants stay in the region of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Yosef, as regards your father and your brothers who have come to you, the land of Egypt is open before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them stay in the region of Goshen. And if you know any capable men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. So he's giving them a job. Joseph then brought his father, Yaakov, and presented him to Pharaoh. And Yaakov greeted Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked Jacob, how many are the years of your life? And Jacob answered Pharaoh, the years of my sojourn are 130. Few and hard have been the years of my life, nor do they come up to the lifespans of my fathers during their sojourns. Then Jacob bade farewell, Pharaoh farewell and left Pharaoh's presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers, giving them holdings in the choicest part of the land in Egypt, in the region of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Joseph sustained his father and his brothers and all his father's household with bread down to the little ones. Now there was no bread in all the world, for the famine was severe. Both the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Joseph gathered in all the money that was to be found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan as payment for the rations that were being procured. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's palace. And when the money gave out in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us bread, lest we die before your very eyes, for the money is gone. And Joseph said, bring your livestock and I will sell to you against your livestock if the money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, for the stocks of sheep and cattle and the asses. Thus, he provided them with bread that year in exchange for all their livestock. And when that year was ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, we cannot hide from my Lord that with all the money and animal stocks consigned to my Lord, nothing is left at my Lord's disposal, save our persons and our farmland. Let us not perish before your eyes, both we and our land. Take us and our land in exchange for bread. And we with our land will be serfs to Pharaoh. Provide the seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become a waste. So Joseph gained possession of all the farmland of Egypt for Pharaoh. Every Egyptian, having sold his field because the famine was too much for them, thus the land passed over to Pharaoh. And he removed the population town by town from one end of Egypt's border to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not take over, for the priests had an allotment from Pharaoh, and they lived off the allotment which Pharaoh had made to them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, whereas I have this day acquired you and your land for Pharaoh, here is seed for you to sow the land. And when harvest comes, you shall give one fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be yours as seed for the fields and as food for you and those in your households, and as nourishment for your children. And they said, you have saved our lives. We are grateful to my Lord, and we shall be serfs to Pharaoh. And Joseph made it into a land law in Egypt, which is still valid, that a fifth to be Pharaoh's, only the land of the priests did not become Pharaoh's. Thus, Israel settled in the country of Egypt, in the region of Goshen. They acquired holdings in it and were fertile and increased greatly. Okay.
Thoughts? What just happened? Socialism. Socialism? Well, not not really. <laughs> it's the, the beginning of a vig. You pay a vig. The beginning right? of like what? the mafia. You pay a vig. A vid. Vig. V I G. You pay a vig. Like oh. when the mafia comes around, you, okay. you got to give them a piece of the earnings. All right. So I'm learning new terms here. Um, so this is more than a vig. What just happened? Isn't Joseph, Joseph just Joseph. doing his job? Okay. So let's hold that question. Joseph, Joseph just uh, figured out a way to appropriate all the livestock, all the land, and <laughs> then gave it all to Pharaoh. So the people were, were so grateful because they were starving to death, but he took everything from them. He, he used this terrible, terrible time to take everything. Okay. He also, he also ingratiated himself with Pharaoh tremendously and solved the problem of famine to a degree. So he kind of was in a win-win situation, except people gave up their, their independence, their, their own land. But he fed people, and Pharaoh saw him as a hero, too. He's very smart. I mean, clearly everything he's done has been so smart, not necessarily smart for the good way. Okay. Didn't Joseph just enslaved the Egyptians? Joseph just enslaved the Egyptians. That's pretty much it in a nutshell. Sarah Moskowitz? He just secured um, participation in Egypt for the Jewish population. Say more. I think since he is Jewish, by his clever arrangement, it protects the Jews for the time being. Okay, so he arranges a situation for his family where his family doesn't have to sell their land because they're not Egyptians. They don't presumably own the land. So he has set them up pretty nicely. Meanwhile, meanwhile, taking all of the Egyptians' farms from them. What else does he do? He doesn't just take their farms and and their livestock. What else does he do? He makes them serfs. Yep. And what else? He enslaves them. Yeah, what else? uh... He moves them. He moves every single Egyptian from where they lived to another place. Every town. He moves everybody in the town to somewhere else. So not only does he enslave them, not only does he take all their stuff, he moves them so that they are no longer living in their lo- their local historical places. Because what does that help? You're right, Susan, like Lenin and Stalin. That's right. The government owns everything. What what does that help prevent if you move people out of where they grew up? They don't have power of community anymore. They don't have the same power of community. And they don't have the same attachment to this is my land. If you uproot somebody and move them somewhere else, they just got there yesterday so I think about israel their attachment to right. their their claim to that land right mm-hmm. you you also hopefully tamp down rebellion right this is what rome did 
Rome moved people out of their cities and moved them somewhere else in the Roman Empire. Because then you're less likely to rebel. This is not your place. You're somewhere new. Okay, Mark, were you trying to say something? Oh, uh, uh, I was wondering, I don't don't recall in this part of the Porsche where uh, where the moving of of everybody was mentioned. Did I miss that? You did. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) You did. I'll take the word for that. Yes. So he moves everybody. 721. All right, so um, let me let me see if I can direct you. Caution, 21. Verse 21? Yeah. Thank you. Oh. And he removed the population town by town from one end of Egypt's border to the other. 47-21. Thank you, Emmalinda. Okay, Thanks. so this is, this is the project, right, is to disempower all Egyptians, and they now, everything, everything now belongs to Pharaoh. All right. So someone said, what, Linda? I was going to say, they become strangers in their own Ah. neighborhoods, in their own land. They become strangers in their own land. What does this foreshadow? Well, it sounds like the Palestinians to me. It sounds like like the Jews. This is what's going to happen to the Israelites. This is what's going to happen to his family. His family, everything belongs to Pharaoh. What do we start the next book of the Torah with? What's the first sentence of the next book of the Torah? They were strangers in a strange land. No. A king arose who did not know them. Thank you. There arose a Pharaoh who did not remember Joseph. There arose a pharaoh who didn't care how he got everything. He has all the power, all the wealth, all the everything. And now the displaced, poor Egyptians, what's going to happen to how they treat the Israelites? Oh, right. They're going to oppress them and make them slaves. Joseph essentially sets up 400 years of Israelite slavery. Mm-hmm. Right. In this week's Parsha. Yes, absolutely. But so, not intent, but not that wasn't his intention. Oh, okay. So unforeseen circumstances. Well, first, first of all, what are his intentions? Someone said he's just doing his job. Really? Mm-hmm. Is he doing his job? You know, he went out of his way to uh, provide food for distressed people who had no choice but to agree to give up their possessions to him. That was not an accident. Did he have to take their possessions to feed them? No. No. Shelley said no. He's the one who set aside during the seven years of bumper crops. Seven years of bumper crops are on their way. I can't help it. So seven years of bumper crops, he sets aside all the surplus for the seven lean years. He's got food. He's got provisions. How come he couldn't just feed the population? Why does he need to take their livestock and then take their land? He knew seven years of famine was coming. Barry? Uh, Yes, I I think we're talking about central planning of sorts. Uh, Since these people could not take care of themselves on their own, uh, we have 
two mechanisms to gain efficiency. One of them is the market system, where those who cannot feed themselves become bankrupt and work for those who can. And there's the other system, which is central planning, uh, that you allocate the land to those who can uh, efficiently work it and, and produce food. So these are two systems that are designed to gain maximum efficiency. But, but the fact that you can doesn't mean you should. Yes. It, right. So, so that's, that's an important point that I want to make sure we keep talking about is, should he have? Because there is another way, which is feed the people, have them work the land, don't take their land. Right? right? There is a way to say, work the land, and, and even have Pharaoh take a, a, a part of it for centralized distribution. Fine. Why do you have to take their land and then displace them from their farms? Lynn, and then Sarah. So I have a question prompted by your delightful rendering of that song, (laughs) that when Pharaoh had the dream and Joseph interpreted it, and so we're going to set aside, we have seven bountiful years, so we are prepared for the famine, I would have thought, one would have thought, that this became the plan for Egypt, that the Egyptians were told, let's prepare for what's coming down the pike. So if they were all contributing to this food bank for the future, why, when they came to Joseph, didn't they say, okay, now is the famine, let's reap what we harvested, why, why uh-huh. did they rise up in rebellion? Uh-huh. I ask this question about the Russians all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, seriously. Like, sometimes I just watch the news and go, I don't understand. So let's so sit with that for a second. Why don't people rise up and demand to share in what clearly the government has lots of? So let's sit with that question for a minute while we listen to what Sarah wants to say. And then David? Perhaps um, his position, he um, liked this plan that he had because he was currying favor with the king. And maybe that was his primary goal to preserve the safety for himself and his people by doing something that would empower the king more. Okay, so he's currying favor. He wants to make sure he and his family are protected. So you get as close to the oligarch uh, mm-hmm. as you can and have the oligarch owe you something. Okay, so how do we feel about that, David? We see that. We've um, seen that with Trump. We've seen that with Trump. Right. So, okay, that already says a little bit about how Sarah feels about that, <laughs> I think. Um, David? <laughs> I guess I'm going to take the unpopular position here, which I find myself doing frequently. <laughs> you know, Joseph works for Logan Roy. He what? Right? He works for Logan Roy. Uh-huh. This is his job. Wait, 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 wait. Wait. There I want to say, how do you know Pharaoh was Logan Roy? Pharaoh was Pharaoh. Pharaoh was told. We have no indication. Joseph expected can subserve Pharaoh. We have no indication, though, that Pharaoh's like Logan Roy. What would you None. guess would be the response? 
that Pharaoh would want. Wouldn't Pharaoh look with favor on what Joseph would be doing here? Sure. So that's what Sarah right. suggested, that he's... So Joseph is Pharaoh. Pharaoh's employee. Now, Joseph could act separately. He could commit economic suicide and say, Pharaoh, the hell with you. I'm looking out for the people. I'm exp- I assume that Pharaoh would say to Joseph, Joseph, it's time for you to find a new career. Okay, so uh, maybe gonna, we're expecting more out of Joseph than we have a right to expect. I think you're making a lot of assumptions about Pharaoh that we Where don't have any evidence for. Joseph is the one who interprets the dreams. Joseph is the one who comes up with the plan. Joseph is the one who decides to take their livestock and their land and move them off their ancestral homeland. We have no indication that Pharaoh expected anything other than a plan to feed the people during famine. This is Joseph doing this. What would you guess would be Pharaoh's response? If you have those without evidence, I bet you if you pulled everybody here, they'd say Pharaoh would love what Joseph's doing. Feed the people. That's all. That's all we have from Pharaoh is he gives Joseph the power to feed the people. It's up to Joseph how he does that. Now, do we think Pharaoh's pleased with this? Sure, we can assume Pharaoh's pleased with this. That has nothing to do with should Joseph have done this. If the question is, is he trying to curry favor with Pharaoh like people have suggested, then yes, this is a good plan. But the the question we're sitting with and the rabbis have been sitting with for thousands of years is, should Joseph have done this? Amy, that's a different issue. That's the moral issue, and you're absolutely right. But the practical issue is that's what Joseph's job is. He could have done his job without doing this, is my point. I doubt that. A a fabulous job of feeding the people because he had surplus. So what I hear you saying is, yeah, but duh, if he can, why wouldn't he do this? And my that's the big question, though. Did he have to? And if he didn't, how do we feel about that, Barry? I think the answer to the no rebellion question is uh, really about uh, Joseph making sure that the priests are are uh, not to be touched. So and 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 Joseph is also perceived as a person with a direct connection to God. So uh, y- people are really hesitate to rebel against God, especially if the priests are saying, "Sure, that's a great plan." <laughs> right. So I think Barry's on to absolutely something critical, which is one of the ways you keep a population from challenging authority is to make sure you've got other kinds of authority spread throughout the population. So the priest's lands were not touched. So if the church has a good deal here, right, and Pharaoh is head of the church, let's not forget, Pharaoh's a god. And Joseph, right, is right up there with the the deity that Pharaoh is. And is also, like, we can assume, head of the church and is protecting the church. So that is one very important factor in keeping the people from feeling like they can rise up. Mark? Uh, actually, I think uh, what I was going to say is essentially that uh, what everybody's been saying or most people have been saying, I think all of these issues are uh, essentially true. They're all motivations that people have. And this desire, uh, the, the, uh, 
the desires to um, uh, have power over people, to own people, to own um, all the means of uh, security is, is a more or less universal desire. And uh, the, uh, the specific ways and conditions under which it's worked out, I think, are, are important. But um, the motivation is there on all sides, regardless. I think the interesting thing, in a way, is what you were just talking about, which is the essentially uh, uh, submissive acceptance of this uh, by large masses of people who submit to the authority and power of very small numbers of people who really don't have any means of enforcing their power physically, but do psychologically. Nice. Um, So the question, one of the questions remains before us. I think, Mark, that's a, I mean, it's absolutely spot on that this is universal, the desire to have you know, control over other people, to have more, to take what we can get, um, all of that. So my question is, um, what is this story doing in Torah? Right? Okay, yeah, it's universal. This is our hero. This is our, this is our guy. What, what is Torah? Why is this here? What, is it a warning? Is it a warning that pragmatism is not the answer to all the problems. All right. So let's get with that possibility. Jody. I just think that, you know, when wondering why doesn't Joseph just feed the people like Pharaoh possibly would have, you know, I just don't think Joseph is that guy. I don't, you know, he tricked his brothers. He didn't say, Oh, my brothers. Now look, I've risen to great power whatever, let's put the past behind. He tricked them. He's just not that guy. And I agree with, I guess, David, who said, he's like Roman Roy. You know, he's like the son that just has no moral code. He's the employee. He's you like, got it, Judy. <laughs> what? Yeah. But I, I think he's like Roman Roy. I think, you know, in if we can compare it to that. But um and what Mark said about the psychological pressure, if anyone has seen The Shrink Next Door, I mean, it's a classic example of how a psych- using psychological pressure can uh, make you do anything. But anyway, that's what I think about Joseph. I don't think he's that nice of a guy. Okay, I'm going to come back to, we have no evidence of a Logan Roy here. Okay, I'm, I'm pushing hard on this because... Roman Roy is who he is because his father is such a maniac. We have none of that here. This is this is Joseph being Logan Roy. That's that's true. Not Pharaoh. He wasn't raised by a, a psychopath, right? He. This is Joseph. So I, I'm not going to let anybody. I, I can go with Logan. Okay, good. He's Logan. Right. So so Joseph is Logan Roy here. Got it. Um, and so Roy. So Jody, what I hear you saying is. From the beginning, Joseph hasn't been somebody who's so interested in doing the right thing or doing what's, you know, helpful and healing and whatever that Joseph is damaged. I'm going to use that word that Joseph is kind of either either just his character is such, you know, that he's never going to evolve or he's so damaged. Right. That he he doesn't evolve. I don't know how. 
they get there. But he's not the guy who's going to do what's best for the people, even at this most horrible time of famine. Okay. That's what I think. Bob? Yeah, I think the elephant in the room is that up till now, we've heard that Joseph is with God. He always credits God for his ability to read dreams and to prosper. And all of a sudden, he's not feeding the people. He's putting the people off his land. And it's another story of inconsistency uh, with regard to his fealty to God. So are you suggesting that that he has been with God and he's had that relationship and that's informed what he's done and who he's been. And now he's breaking with that. It's similar to the Jacob and Esau story. It's similar to a number of stories where people have done not what would seem to be quote unquote godly. And he's in the same track as that doing this. So uh, the stories, and this isn't so different from other stories in Torah, where our hero, on the one hand, you know, walks with God and, you know, is a great, you know, moral, you know, exemplar. And on the other hand, does some really icky stuff. I think that's exactly right. Okay. Okay. Susan? Yeah, I, I... I hear what everybody has to say about this, but then I then I then I think about oh, what if um, Joseph had not taken land away? What if he had not essentially enslaved all the people? Where would the rest of our story be? So, so what is this part of an answer to the question? Why is this here? Or this is life, which... Yes, this is... Why is this here? Why is the story written this way? So that people have become enslaved and that eventually somebody arises, a pharaoh arises, who does not does not know Joseph. Um, it's a setup for for the rest of the uh, story, the Jewish story. Um, so could, could not the setup have been Joseph was a major hero and saves the people with his genius plan and foresight, and then a pharaoh arises who doesn't remember that? I think that um, when somebody is loved and beloved, they get written down in history and they're known. Just so couldn't, he have, couldn't he have been beloved and the hero and saved everybody without enslaving them, and still there arises a pharaoh who doesn't remember that and turns on the Jews? Yeah, of course, but but history, history is written in some way and people, people remember these things. So why couldn't it be the other way? Anyway, it's just um, a thought that, you know, why is this here? Why did he have to do it this way? So I still don't hear an answer to that is my point, right? I still don't hear an answer to why it had to be this way. He could have been the hero and done the right thing. And a Pharaoh arises who doesn't care, doesn't remember. And so then turns on the, right. I'm just saying, it's interesting that the authors chose to have Joseph do this and put it in Torah. All right. Uh, Barry, then Mark, then Sarah, then David. Um, I think the answer to the question of why, why is this written here is because we, um, we assume that the, the writers, the, the editors of this story 
um, were refugees from the devastated kingdom of Israel, um, namely the uh, uh, Ephraim tribe, elite. And they have to explain why they are the elite and not Reuben, who's the firstborn of Jacob. And, um, and also they have to um, explain why they broke away uh, from Solomon's kingdom. And this is exactly what Solomon did to build the temple. He moved populations. He levied a heavy tax. Uh, and he did very similar things. Okay, so this so this would this would justify, right? People saying, "Okay, we're out," because this is tyranny, and this is not how you're supposed to rule a kingdom. We don't want to be part of a kingdom where the king does this to his people, so we're out. Okay, Mark. You know, um, I keep coming back to uh, thinking about this as um, a, uh, a metaphorical description of a psychological constellation, which is very common and very well known. That, um, uh, And if we look at the events in this story, not as uh, potentially uh, um, random events, it could have been uh, other than they are. They are as they are in the story. And from if you think of it in terms of uh, describing a psychological constellation, they have a, a reason for being there. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the psychological constellation has its roots in the early uh, situation, the early relationship of Joseph with his father as the, uh, the uh, person who has become what is essentially an Oedipal victor. He has, uh, he has uh, uh, the not only the, uh, the victory of being his father's favorite, the special child, the, uh, the inducement to uh, a, uh, a development of a narcissistic grandiosity and so on, but also um, all of the uh, fears, all of the anxieties about retribution and his needs and desires to fortify himself against that and to uh, present himself in uh, in some more grandiose way not as a uh, not as someone who is inherently anxious and feels very vulnerable um, and I, I think there's uh, there's much more to be said about it but the story is very coherent um, if you look at it from that point of view so for mark what I hear you this is this is Great. So the, the explanation is because Joseph was broken. Joseph was damaged. And and so it has to. So the natural outcome is that somebody wants total power and control because they have such, you know, yeah. So that that is an answer to why um, that I like a lot is, is that because because he had the problem starting in childhood, you know, with right? How his father treated him and in relationship to all these other older brothers. Um, mom's gone, right? So mom's out of the picture. Um, and in that sense, right? No competition for, you know, dad's affection and attention. Joseph kind of becomes the representation of mom, mm -hmm. right? And in that sense is dad's partner. Um, and mm -hmm. yeah. And so then what that leads to, right, is 
not good things, right? <laughs> to somebody who, of course, this is going to be the outcome if he's given the opportunity to exercise that kind of power and control. Lovely. David? Um, Amy, Mark really did say it much better than I did, but I, that's what I was trying to say. Um, I honestly think after, I don't know, six or seven years of going through this, that virtually everybody from Abraham down is on the spectrum in one phase (laughs) or another. And this is a whole defective group of people caused by tremendous emotional scarring. And I think Mark is absolutely right to expect more out of Joseph, given the framework from which the whole family came and being in a pit and having the brothers try to kill him. How much can you expect? So if the re- and also, I want to add, I look at Torah now, maybe what you've taught me is this is the story of our people. This is us. And we can expect the warts and the problems and everything that comes with it. So if the rabbis are looking for a better answer, they're looking down the wrong avenue. Of course, Joseph could be a saint. But that's just not Joseph. And that's our story. And that's what we're reading. And that's what we're studying. Okay. Thank you. Um, I just want to clarify that people on the spectrum don't behave like Joseph, right? So that is not part of what it means to be on the spectrum. So I just want to be very clear about that, that he's, right, this is something else. This is what Mark was talking about, about the kind of damage that comes to a healthy ego and a and uh, you know, whatever when it's of course, of it's, course, yeah, it's given stuff that isn't appropriate. Um, Shelley, well, I would agree with you that none of these none of these people are on the autism spectrum, but we are seeing the spectrum of human behavior and what and what we're all, I guess, capable of, depending on the choices that we make. But I'm struck by one other thing based on what was said here, which is yes, um, Joseph grew up very self centered narcissistic, thinking the world revolved around him, maybe quite obnoxious too. Um, but, but at the same time, uh, we had the sense that he believed he was serving God. It seems to me in this moment, he's not serving the same God. He's moved away from God to serve Pharaoh because that's gotten him all the golden riches. He lost, he lost that center. And this is what happens when we lose our center. This, you know, domino effect of Horrific things can happen when you forget that God is at the center of everything we do. Our God is at the center of everything we do, not Pharaoh, who just happens to be your employer. Right. So um, so to, to that, I just want to say I'm curious about what moves Joseph away, right, from a relationship to what we would have identified as, you know, godliness before this. What, what moves Power him away so, um, so oh, that's no. one question. And Susan, to your point in the chat, um, that this is our history. It's not, right? It's not. This is this is a story that's written. Now, is it based in a famine that happened in Egypt? Probably with a foreign vizier. Probably, but this is this the way it's crafted is a story. And what, that's what that's what I remain so curious always about. But, but, but all of this history of- is a story. George Washington and the cherry tree is a story. So, but, so then my question remains, why, why is this the story that our ancestors decided was a good idea to make our history? 
Because right. we're a religion that believes in seeing ourselves as people and not striving for this perfection. Okay, but this is far from perfection. Not just exactly. So if we strive to be like our ancestors, this is megalomania. We get in trouble with it, our relatives. <laughs> right? It is. It is a cautionary tale. Okay. The so whole thing. Yeah. Be very careful, people, because you may think you're walking yeah, yeah. with God. You may think you're all that and you may think you're doing such a great job in the world. And all it's going to take is some temptation. And look what can happen. Look, and all it's going to take. Come. And, and, don't all think- and all it's going to take is arriving at a point of power after you have been powerless. Okay. So don't think you're immune (laughs) or don't think your suffering has made you immune to becoming them. It is sometimes out of our suffering that we become exactly what damaged us. Thank you, Sarah. Mm -hmm. Jody. Okay. You know, our entire Torah is filled with characters with faults. And that's why they're in the Torah. That's why it was written. This is my belief. We didn't write about things that were not a cautionary tale, that were everybody behaving la, 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 and it's wrapped up in a little bow and and nobody does anything bad. And there's no question and nobody's tricking someone in bed by singing the love tunes. This is what our Torah is, I believe. It is filled with faulty characters. It is filled with Moses who gets angry. And uh, this is what it is. It's for us to learn from. I don't think this would exist if it was just filled with people who just obeyed all the rules and never did anything wrong and never did anything to hurt anybody and just wrapped up. Um, I don't think that would exist. So it's very interesting that the rabbis don't go there. The rabbis don't go there. The rabbis need to justify Joseph doing what seems pretty horrible. It's, yeah. This is different than la, 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 wrap it up with a bow. This is for real. Enslaving the entire population? Really? That's a little bit beyond we all have our faults. <laughs> This is megalomania and in our, in our guy, in right, in our hero. And so I'm not arguing that you're, I I agree with your point, obviously, like that's, that's, I, that's, you've heard me say it a million times. That's why I love these stories is because it's not perfection. It's not, these are heroes that are unlike us. Of course, this one feels a little different. Moses losing his temper, all that kind of stuff. Jacob weaseling out, you know, his brother. All of this feels to me a little different. And how do the rabbis justify it? And we know power corrupts. We know many people that started out preaching uh, everybody love each other and whatever, Jim Jones and all that, and then ends up asking everyone to commit suicide or making them and uh, you know, power corrupts. And I think that's a major lesson out of this story. Okay. So, <clears throat> so Judas, there's, there's a lot written 
um, you know, about, about that. The rabbis spend a lot of ink um, trying to figure out how to defend what Joseph does, that he thinks this is what God wants, that he thinks this is the best thing, that he thinks this is how he can best serve his role um, as the vizier. It's hard to come up with a justification, but they call him Yosef HaTzadik, Joseph the Righteous. Mm. I, I got some issues with that. David has no problem with this, but I, I got some issues with this. I'm not going to lie. Not, not at all. I don't think he's righteous at all. I think he oh, okay. does Joseph right. defects right. at all. So, but so, so it's, that's why it remains interesting to me is that they call him Yosef HaTzadik and then this is what he does, right? Emma Linda? I think it's interesting that uh, this follows right after he secures land and uh, safety for his family. And I think that there is perhaps a moral tale in that I'm just protecting my family. I'm just looking out for my family. I need to, I'm just protecting my family can lead a person to do a lot of really horrible things, I think, and justify it in their own mind. Yeah. Um, And in that sense, like Sarah said, this is a cautionary tale. Don't think it can't be you. And and who the hero and who the villain of a story is sometimes just depends on where you stop telling the story. Like you, I've been having the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat soundtrack stuck in my head for all the weeks we've been reading this story. And like, what a wonderful, happy ending there. It depends on where you stop the story. Um, yep. And what we, I, pay, what we put the spotlight on. Yeah. Right? He does save his family. You know, he does feed Egypt. Right. If we if we put the spotlight there, it's like, OK, Joseph is he's a pretty good guy. If we put the spotlight where I put it this morning, right, we were left with a little more question challenge around the whole thing of Joseph being the hero of of our of our story. Um, OK, so um, the other thing that this brings, I think, um, forward for us as progressive Jews is um, what is our participation in a world food supply system that constantly disempowers people in other countries who become dependent on us for food. Um, And if you go to AJWS, American Jewish World Service, um, they have beautiful pieces written on exactly this question, that Joseph in feeding the people makes them and taking everything makes them dependent on him and that that leads to terrible things and that yes, they get fed, but at what cost? Um, And then we see what happens, right? We see what happens in, as we start the book of Exodus, it sets up a terrible system that lots of people suffer under um, and a system of inequality of inequity that now continues for 400 years. Um, and so the, the question we're asked by, by places like American Jewish World Service is, what are we as America doing when we start importing our, you know, we export our grain to places where we're now undercutting the price of grain in that country for farmers in that country? Mm-hmm. So we're feeding people. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. And then we undercut the price of their Great, you know, what they're producing so that they, their farms collapse. So, and then they become dependent on um, rations from the United States. So I, I, 
I'm, I'm, and I don't know enough about food policy to speak very intelligently about this. I know just enough to know that we participate as Americans in a system that keeps people disempowered to too great a degree. And um, that we, we need to put pressure in the ways that we can on where we spend our aid money and how we help other people so that they are empowered and not disempowered. And I think it's one of the cautionary tales um, of the Joseph narrative is how, how helping people can also essentially disempower them to a point where there's no way for them to get out of it. Um, And so, yes, you have fed them for today, um, but you've also now, it, you've made it so that their grandchildren won't be able to be self-sustaining and, um, and control, you know, the, the destiny of their own um, people. Lynn? We don't have to look very far afield. Just look what's happened within our own country when the government moved the Native Americans off of their land that they were cultivating and their livestock, put them in a different place and provided them with food, with the, with flour, with terrible food that look at the problems that it's created. They can no longer farm. They have terrible incidents of diabetes and all because of the diet that's not their natural diet. So we don't, we don't have to leave our own borders, borders right. to see what our policy right. is. And, and the food deserts that we have where, you know, people who don't have, um, who, who don't have access to nutritious food. Right. And uh, I don't know about y'all, but the, what we call whole foods, you know, we call it whole paycheck. Um, mm-hmm. Right. So that, you know, to access. So first of all, access at all to healthy food. And second of all, what's the food that costs the most, right, is the food that's the most nutritious. You know, the food that's junk is the stuff people living at subsistence levels can afford. Uh, And so it's a you're exactly right that we don't have to look past our own city. Um, You know, I can drive to where this is an absolutely critical um, issue. Um, So, Lisa, um, no, I can't (laughs) right now, but go to AJWS.org and there's lots there on. um, And I think it's hunger reverse. So AJWS.org, there you go. Bert is already on it. What we do, land and water rights. So there's that and there's hunger reverse. Um, so AJWS.org slash hunger reverse are some articles about ha- how to address uh, hunger and um, some of their concerns um, about yeah, yeah. that. And then lots of good stuff on um, ha- how that, and because it's, that's why I'm sending you to AJWS, right? yeah. the J is going to help tie into a Jewish perspective on um, both our texts and our, and our values and, and how how this issue is seen from a progressive Jewish. My daughter is doing her graduate work in exactly this area. So Great. I, I'll forward it to her. Thank you. Yes, yes, yes. There's good stuff there. Really good stuff. There you go. <laughs> Bert's on it. Bert's, Bert's, just go to the chat and look at what Bert provides, and we're all good. Um, yes, Mark. You know, um, before we completely... Uh, even I think this what you're raising now is not uh, the leaving of the earlier discussion, but I, I just wanted to say that I, it, uh, I would uh, uh, propose that 
a great deal of the Torah, if not all of it, is essentially a museum of human, the human psyche, and that uh, it is a, a very uh, realistic depiction of the human psyche, and it is, it, uh, is organized around a concept, I think, of uh, psychic determinism um, that uh, makes these stories um, uh, be essentially as they are, that, the, that it's not accidental the, uh, that these things uh, uh, unfold as they do, these stories unfold as they do. And I think that that in turn uh, says a great deal, not only about humanity in general, but specifically about uh, Jews and uh, Jewish culture. Mark, you just made me the proudest Torah teacher ever. Yeah. The proudest Torah teacher ever that Mark Fish, who's like, I know nothing about any of this stuff, is now saying, you know, Torah is. I love that. You just <laughs> made my week. Um, right? So <laughs> we, should all, we should all get to a point where it's like, okay, here's my understanding of what's going on with this stuff. And I, and I think it is absolutely true that this is a museum of the psyche, of the spirit, of the heart, of reality, of humanity, of all of us. Um, and that means there's some pretty n- ugly pictures, <laughs> right, in here. And, you know, to Sarah's point, this is one of the more cautionary uh, museum displays, you know, is here's what can happen when, you know, and that it's about remaining vigilant, that we still might, you know, we might be the hero, we might be walking with God, we might be doing so many wonderful things, and... Right. Be very careful when you get access to fulfilling your own, you know, stuff, you know, that be be very careful that you don't take opportunities given to you where you have power and control to act out of your, you know, your desire to feel better, you know, at whatever places we don't feel so good, right, about ourselves, consciously or, or unconsciously. Okay, uh, David, and then we're going to close up. You know, um, Amy, you asked, I think, a really important question, and I don't think we really came to grips with this, but I'm reminded of the idea that this, what's in the Torah was written and redacted much later than the events that they're writing about. So the question you asked is, why did the rabbis choose this? Why did the redactors choose this story? And I think Mark and Sarah really have their finger on it, that at the end of the day, we really need to be aware of what happens when people act out of malevolent desires. And that's us. This is a window to us. But the the choice of why using the story seems to be to be what Sarah said. It's cautionary. Wake up because this could happen to you. All right. So let's make sure we're awake people or else. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.